Good to see everybody here this morning. Uh, my name is Daniel. I am one of the pastors and elders here at Aletheia, this church. And children, if you have not left yet, you can go with your Aletheia Junior teachers right out those back doors. All right, looks like they're all taken care of. All right, to begin this morning, we are going to be talking about the anticipation of Christmas. Who in here is a Christmas crazy? One, two, three, four, a few of you? All right, I'm, I'm going to give you one more chance because you probably didn't know that you're actually going to be allowed to do that. Who in here is a Christmas crazy? Uh, okay, a few of you. All right, who, who in here has already gone full Grinch? Anybody? Any, all, all right, right here. We got three or four full Grinches all, all, already. Um, I mean, the, the reality is, you know, with everything in life, you're going to have people on the opposite ends of the spectrum, but generally, most people are in the middle. And if you're like me, you probably come to Christmas every year, and it just comes upon you faster than you know, and it's here before you know it, and you're trying to get into the spirit, you're trying to get into the season, but you just feel worn, like you just feel tired, and Everything's going on. Like for some of you, the semester has already ended, but yet I was talking to Alex this morning. She's in law school. There's a six-hour exam on Wednesday. Like it's just really hard to get jazzed up about Christmas when everything is going on in life. Or maybe it's been a really hard year. Maybe there have been some financial struggles, some family struggles, some, some, some health struggles. But I can bet at one point in time in your life, you were a Christmas crazy. Like there was this massive anticipation of December 25th finally making its way upon the calendar. Now, for the people of my generation, I'm 46 years old, there was a marking point every single year in the United States. There was a day that came where every child in America flipped the switch in the anticipation of Christmas. And it wasn't post-Halloween. It wasn't Black Friday. It was the arrival of the Sears catalog. <laughs> All right? I don't even know if y'all know what Sears is or what a catalog is, so let me explain this to you, okay? There would be a day where you were just going about your normal life and you would come home from school, and lo and behold, on the kitchen counter or on the, or on the dining room table, there it would be, a thousand pages thick of the most glorious sight you had ever seen in your entire life. Anything and everything you could buy in America, not on Amazon, but in the pages of the Sears catalog. And me and my brother, we would go, we would grab that catalog and we would lay on the floor and we would open it up and we didn't care about the clothes. We didn't care about anything else. We wanted to turn right to the middle to the toy section. And I cannot tell you the number of hours spent every single year pouring over the possibilities of Christmas, of what we were going to ask for, what we were anticipating getting. And I will say my parents did a wonderful job every single year um, of 
getting, you know, what we ask for. My parents did something, though, very unique that I don't know I've ever heard anyone else doing. For almost all of my childhood growing up, we never had a single present under the tree. In fact, my parents never wrapped a single present. What my parents did, they kept all the gifts off-site. And then when we went to bed, they really played up the whole Santa thing so that when we would wake up, we had two couches in our house and all of their 80s glory. There was a brown couch on one side. There was a gold couch on the other side of the room. And the brown couch was mine. The gold couch was my brother's. And when we woke up, all the gifts and all the presents were just there, right? So I remember like there was He-Man Christmas, okay? Where like the couch was just full of He-Man. There was G.I. Joe Christmas, where the couch was just full of G.I. Joe from end to end. I remember probably my favorite, Transformer Christmas. 30 Transformers in their boxes in all their glory, just sitting right on the couch. There was also Nintendo Entertainment System Christmas, when we had Duck Hunt and the little gun and all that stuff. I mean, there were some incredible moments, but the anticipation of Christmas was always there as a child. And every time it seemed to deliver. But as I've gotten older, now that I'm 46 years old, I can buy what I want, when I want. Really, the, the, the only anticipation that I have each and every Christmas is the one, two, or three credit card bills my wife has racked up. <laughs> That's it. That is the only anticipation I have now. It's not near as fun. Not at all. Oh, but the joy in your children's faces. Nope, I just see dollar signs every time they get happy. That's it. That's the only thing I get out of Christmas. But, that, but it's not how I want it to be. And I'm sure it's not how you want Christmas to be. Like, like you want to get into the Christmas spirit, right? Because Christmas is our story to tell. I mean, if there's a time for the followers of Jesus to rejoice, to celebrate, to make connections with the world, connections with your one, I mean, this is it. I mean, everywhere you go, people are singing songs about Jesus. I mean, like, I, I, I never do this, but I got on YouTube the other night on, on my TV, and I just put on a Christmas song, and then it just did its all, you know, algorithm thing, and started playing songs. And all these people, I mean, like, the most vile pagan heathen Philistines were singing praises to Jesus because they had made a Christmas album. Like everybody sings about, and they're, I'm like, and they're singing about the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And it's like, like you were just in the tabloids the other day. Like I just saw you on the internet. Like, but yet here you are singing about King Jesus. This is our season. But yet, when life is hard, when life is difficult, when life is trying, it's really hard to try and stir up this emotion and this joy and this excitement. And, and I think today's passage can really help us. I think you can really, I think you really will be able to identify with the people of God and the children of God in their current situation, in their current context in the book of Zephaniah. So as we look at this, we're going to enter into the biblical history right here. 
Because right now, as we're in the book of Zephaniah, I want you to go ahead and just kind of put into your brain 615 B.C. That's when Zephaniah pins these words to the children of God. Now, if you've been with us for any length of time or at any point in time in the fall, you know we just went through the entire book of Judges. And so when you hear the book of Judges, if you're trying to make a middle marker on a timeline, just think 1200 B.C. So we come out of the time of Judges and we move into the biblical books of 1st and 2nd Samuel. Now, Samuel is, um, he is the very last judge and he is the very first official prophet. And God raises Samuel up. And while Samuel is leading the people of Israel, the people of Israel, they come to Samuel and they say, hey, Samuel, we want a king like all the other nations. And Samuel says, no, you don't. And they said, oh, yes, Samuel, we know exactly what we want, and we want you to give it to us. Samuel goes to God and goes, God, they say they want a king. He said, Samuel, give the people what they want. Just let them know how bad this is going to go from them. He goes and says, this is going to go really bad for you guys. We don't care. We know what we want, Sam. All right. So Sam goes, I'm going to go find you a king. And so he goes and he finds King Saul. And Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, do you remember that story from the end of the book of Judges? Remember that crazy stuff, the cutting up of the concubine? Where were those people from? The tribe of Benjamin. So don't we have a little foreshadowing of how this story is going to go? Yes. So Saul, he actually did a pretty, few, pretty, he did a few good things along the way, but he just couldn't be obedient to God when it came to sacrifices and some other things. So God said, I'm going to remove you and your family and your line, and you will not continue as king. But we already knew this because the Bible tells us way before then that the king is going to arrive from the tribe of Judah. So he goes and he appoints Samuel to go and find the shepherd boy out in the field named David. King David, whenever you think King David, just think 1000 BC. David, a great and mighty warrior, he goes and he conquers the land. He thwarts all the enemies of God. Israel is in power at this time. His son, the wise and discerning Solomon, builds the nation of Israel at its economic power. It is the power of the world. As Justin told us last week, they had so much financial prosperity. They had so much gold. They were putting it on their shields going into battle because they had nothing better to do with all the wealth that they had accumulated. But even Solomon, the wise king, made some really dumb choices when it came to how he would propagate the kingdom. His sons, at his passing in 950 BC, split the kingdom. Israel splits into Israel in the north, the 11 tribes, and Judah in the south. We read in Kings and Chronicles all these stories about righteous king, unrighteous king, righteous king, and unrighteous king. Well, in 850 B.C., God raises up what is the first of the prophets that we have recorded in the Old Testament, where we have the prophetic books, okay? So when you think about the prophets of Israel and the books contained in the Old Testament, think 850 B.C. to 400 B.C. The first one beginning with Joel, most scholars agree, but we all know it ended with Malachi in 400 B.C. So 
in the prophets, we have two uh, sections of prophets, we like to call them. We have the major prophets and we have the minor prophets, okay? The only uh, differentiation here is the long books versus the short books, okay? The major prophets are the ones like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, which Jeremiah wrote, Daniel, and Ezekiel. Those are the really long ones. The short books, Joel, Obadiah, Jonah, Amos, Micah, Nahum, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. But there are also three groups within those two sets of prophets. And this is helpful to remember them, to know where they fall in the biblical timeline and history. There are the pre-exile prophets, which is Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Amos, Hosea, Nahum, Zephaniah, and Habakkuk. And they are all saying, hey, judgment is coming, judgment is coming, repent of your sin. And they do this for about 250 years. Then we have the exile prophets who are Jeremiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel. And then we have the post-exile prophets who are Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And some of you might be asking, Daniel, what is the exile? Somebody honk at me? <laughs> All right, I'll tell you. Just settle down. All right. So we have, we have, the, exi we have the exile, right? So wh what is the exile? So God kept warning the people of Israel. If they didn't repent, they were going to be overrun and dispersed by another kingdom. And so eventually in 725 BC, God sends the nation of Assyria and they overrun Israel. Now remember, we got two separate. We got 11 tribes of Israel in the north, Judah in the south. So Israel, Assyria overruns Israel in the north. Judah is still hanging on. Well, eventually, Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon overrun Assyria, and Assyria eventually begins to invade Judah. And after three massive invasions, starting around, and again, the numbers are really close. Don't get on to me and say, I read this guy, said this one thing, okay? Around 615, all the way down to 586 BC, there are these three large invasions that take place over a period of time. And eventually the people are carried off into exile. This is what the book of Daniel is all about. We see all those guys getting carried off. This is what's taking place. So from 586 to 516 BC, everyone is in exile. It lasts exactly 70 years, just like the book of Jeremiah said it was going to. It's going to be 70 years. So, just because I can't help it, because we're in a college town, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to give you a hope and a future. You know that verse? Okay. Just so you know, Jeremiah says this right before God sends them into exile. So when you graduate and somebody gives you this card, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, that's us sending you off into 70 years of work exile. Congratulations. <laughs> All right? So, Zephaniah is the last prophet to write right before the exile. So there's nothing new in Zephaniah that all the other pre-exilic prophets didn't say. However, he does a wonderful job in a short and succinct fashion summing up everything that all the other pre-exile prophets have said. So, now that you know where we're at in the story of the biblical timeline, let's jump into the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah is the royal prophet. He is a descendant of the righteous king, Hezekiah, 
And he is prophesying in the day of the righteous king, Josiah. Zephaniah begins his word to the people of Judah with these words. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests. Uh, those who bow down on the roofs to the hosts of heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him. Now, I, I, I want you to notice something here because Zephaniah makes a statement as a word of the Lord to which God has no problem taking credit for the destruction about to happen. I mean, I mean look what he says. Right there, verse 1, I will utterly sweep away in verse 2. I will utterly sweep away in verse 3. I will stretch out my hand. I will cut off. God is taking full credit for the judgment that is about to befall the nation. We in our current society and culture have a very hard time putting this kind of judgment into the hands of God. Because God is love. We don't like to think about God in this way. And we try to do everything we can to excuse God ever bringing judgment upon people. I, I just want to say to you, get a spine. Get a backbone. You don't have to excuse things away from God that God takes full credit for. You actually diminish God when you don't allow God to be the righteous judge of sin. Of your sin, of my sin, and other people's sin. You cannot be afraid to tell people that God will judge them for their sin. You do them an incredible disservice when you make God only to be a God of love. Because God is love, but yet... God is holy, 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 declares the Word of God. Because you need to see here, this passage shows a full judgment from God. Wiping away people from the face of the earth. But you need to also see that it shows a fair judgment. God has been warning these people for two 150 years begging them to repent. He has been merciful. He has been gracious. He has done everything that He can do to call them to repent, and yet they continue to worship God in one hand, but also Milcom in the other, to worship all the other gods around them. And God says, the day of the Lord is near. Now, this is a term used in Scripture over and over and over. It is used directly or in reference 19 times in these three chapters of Zephaniah alone. It is used a multitude of times in the Old Testament, and it is used a multitude of times in the New Testament. There is a, a very near and imminent and real and close 
part of this judgment, but there is also a far part of this judgment out in the future, which we see and we will get to in the book of Revelation. But you need to see, look, look, look what God says. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated His guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of His jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end He will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. God takes full credit for what is about to happen. When you hear the day of the Lord in Scripture, when you read the day of the Lord, this is what you need to have in your mind. It is a span of time during which God personally intervenes in history to bring about not only judgment, but to also save, deliver, Forgive and restore. This is what encompasses the day of the Lord. And in today's passage, we're going to get this near fulfillment that's going to take place in the exile. But in the same way, there is this near and immediate and imminent fulfillment for the people of that day. There is also a future judgment to which this points in the book of Revelation. The final outcome of the day of the Lord is this. The arrogance of man will be brought low and the pride of men humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. This is the day of the Lord. It goes on in chapters 2 and 3 declaring that God will judge the entire world. Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do His just commands, who seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. God declares over and over and over 
that not only will He judge the people of Israel for their sin, but He will also judge the world for its sin. And so we find ourselves much in a similar situation of like uh, of the people of Judah on that day, right? I mean, you, you, you get this word from Zephaniah of all that is about to happen. But yet you're told at the end, shout to the Lord, rejoice! But yet the judgment has not begun to take place. But yet what we find ourselves here in this Christmas season, right? And, and, and we want to turn our hearts to God. Like we want to rejoice. We want to celebrate the coming of King Jesus and all that He's done and all that it represents. But yet we are living in the midst of this broken world. We see the chaos and calamity around us all the time. We, we, we see the world at war. We see the things going on in our news feeds, no matter what side of the, side of the aisle we're on. We... We, we feel the weight of our own sin. We know that there are going to be financial struggles on the other side of Christmas. There are going to be family struggles on the other side of Christmas. There's going to be school struggles. There's going to be all these struggles. There, there's going to be life that happens. We know that we want to rejoice, but yet our hearts may have an incredibly difficult time in the midst of the season knowing what is coming. But yet, God commands us to rejoice. And so the question is like, how do we do this? Now again, I, I'm going to tell you in your head, right? But in case you've never heard this, the longest distance in the entire world is the 18 inches between your head and your heart. We're going to talk about this today, but you are going to have to do some heart work to move it from here to here. It will most likely involve some confession, some repentance, some prayer, some time listening to worship music, some time in the Word. It's going to take some work for you to get to the point to where you can rejoice. It's something, joy is something you must fight for in this life. Joy is not just given to you. Joy sometimes has to be scraped up from the bottom of the barrel of waste. So here is God's instruction to His people as they are hearing these words and they're saying, what should we do? And look at what he says first in verse 8 of chapter 3. Therefore, wait for me. But you just told me I had to do all these things, Daniel. Number one is wait. We now, we, we, we are waiting upon the final judgment. Wait upon the Lord. Wait upon me, declares the Lord. For the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation. 
all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. That all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones shall bring my offering. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones. And you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you, He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lamb and gather, save the lame and gather the outcast. And I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in at that time when I gather you together for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. When I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. These people were worn and weary just like you. For the last 300 years, they had seen the devolving of their nation and of their kingdom. They had seen it spiral out of control from leader to leader to leader to leader. It getting worse and worse and worse. Their brothers and sisters have been displaced in the dispersion. They are the, they are the final remnant remaining. And God's command to them is to shout to the Lord and to rejoice at the judgment to come at the forgiveness, at the repentance, at the restoration that will also come. Now you got to think about it. They were trying to put their minds around this, right? Because it's 600 years before the coming of Christ. Like, like they know there is this Messiah coming, but 
they haven't actually seen or experienced this Messiah. Church, this is where we have an incredible advantage. We know King Jesus. We have seen the Messiah come. We have seen God be incredibly faithful to His promise to redeem the people of God. Because that great day of the Lord, in one sense, is fulfilled in the exile. That's a partial fulfillment of it. But King Jesus is also another part of the fulfillment of the great day of the Lord. Because on that day when Christ came, when He entered into the world, and He lived a life that was pure and spotless, so that He could then go upon the cross and face the judgment, on that day, that great day of the Lord, a way was made so that you and I could be forgiven. But we were forgiven how? We were forgiven in the judgment of God. The judgment that was for each and every one of us, that you and I all each deserve, Jesus takes it for every single one of us. And God lays the judgment, His hot, wrathful, righteous indignation. He takes it and He pours it all out on King Jesus so that you and me could be restored so that you and me could be forgiven so that you and me could one day dwell in his presence forever so that you and me have an inheritance that is waiting upon us in heaven where there will be no more sin there will be no more sorrow there will be no more shame there will be no more pain but none of that was possible without judgment, without a full judgment, and without a righteous judgment. King Jesus made that possible. And that is how in this season, if you are looking for joy, that is the only way you can truly find it, is for you to concentrate on the coming of Jesus, on the death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of King Jesus, and His promise to one day return again. That is where true joy is found in this season. So if you are actually looking for joy, if you are desperate for joy, if you are fighting for joy between now and in December the 25th, if you're trying to get your heart caught up and in the mood of Christmas, this is what Christmas was always intended to be. A time for us to dwell upon God, this God, our God, who would take on flesh, who would step down from His throne, be born into lowly and humble circumstances, that He might redeem and rescue the children of God. Church, that's us. That's you. You were dead in your sins and in your trespasses. And before you were ever born, in love, 
God predestined to save you and to send Jesus to die for your sin. That is where true joy is found. They found joy. We find joy in this. Knowing that God has taken away all judgment against us. Did, did you see that? I mean, I, I, do you even know this verse exists in the Bible? I'll, I'll be honest. I, I struggle with this verse in Zephaniah 3. Verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He exults over you with loud singing. Now, does anybody else find it weird that God sings over us? You know, like all the pictures we get in the Bible of us singing to God, right? But yet the Scriptures declare, like right now, the Lord your God sings over you, the children of God, who He has rescued and redeemed. Can you imagine what that's going to sound like when we hear that in heaven? That God will sing over us. He will sing over His children with joy forevermore. Oh, I long for that day. Come, King Jesus. You see, we have this waiting that we have to do right now. They had to wait. We have to wait. But we get to wait knowing what it is that Jesus has already done. Resting in the promise of what the Scriptures declare He will come and do. And again, I know we don't like talking about judgment or thinking about judgment, but yet the Bible is not afraid to address judgment in any way, shape, or form. And I look forward to this day when the rider on a white horse shows up. Though it will be a terrible day, it will be a joyous day. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, 
and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with him and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Church, we all want restoration. But restoration and forgiveness do not come without judgment. So in one hand, we hold tightly that there is this God who has judged our sin and placed that sin upon King Jesus. Church, this is our story to tell this Christmas season. This is your opportunity when you hear songs in the mall, when you are out at parties and gatherings with friends. You will get to see people you don't normally see throughout the year. You will get to reconnect with old acquaintances. Let me implore you, let me urge you to be righteousness in their midst. Let me implore you to share the gospel of Jesus with them. Do not be afraid to speak to them about King Jesus because judgment awaits them. You may be the only Christian they know. You may be the only opportunity that they have to hear the truth of the gospel this year. Take up that opportunity. When you gather with family, take up that opportunity to speak of the things of Jesus. Hold King Jesus in your hand and share Him with all that you have opportunity over this holiday season. But as you do so, do also hold in this hand that if you have trouble finding joy, that there is one day that God will wipe away every tear from your eye. If you are struggling this year, whether it be with mental health, whether it be with physical health, whether it be with 
finances, whether it be with family, in any of the ways that you could struggle. Know that there is a God who loves you. There is a God who is rejoicing over you in gladness. There is a God who is singing over you. And that none of your trials are being wasted. The Bible promises to us, for every trial that we have, it is building endurance. It is building character. It is building hope. And it is building joy. And the more we embrace that everything in our life comes from the hand of a sovereign God, the more we can walk in strength and in faith, knowing that our God is holding us every single moment of the day and is with us through every trial that we face in this life and will face in this life. And as we walk through those, it's only by embracing that mindset that we can truly be obedient to the command in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 and 18 that says to give thanks in all circumstances. If I don't believe God is sovereign over every moment of my life, it's hard for me to give thanks for my circumstances. But if I believe that He is, as the Scripture declares, I can give thanks in all circumstances, even for the bad things. I can rejoice always which is the very next part of that verse. I can rejoice over the people, pressures, and problems that come into my life and make it really difficult, believing that God has brought every one of those things into my life sovereignly to make me more like King Jesus. And then, after it says to give thanks in all circumstances and to rejoice always, it says pray at all times and in all ways. And that's what it looks like to wait. To wait in this life is to give thanks, to rejoice, and to pray. 